A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Fan of Astronomy, Episode 8. Hello, everybody, and welcome to a very special episode of Fan of Astronomy. I am one of the hosts of this show. My name is Angelo, and I'm joined this week, as with almost every other week, by my trusty hosting partner, Mr. Don Horning. Thank you, Angelo. And hi, listeners. Hi, guys. So we actually have a lot to go over in this episode, but it's pretty much going to be about one thing. Obviously, a big news thing hit, but before we get into what actually we're going to talk about, we need to tell you guys about Patreon. Yes, we do have a Patreon at patreon.com slash astronomy, where you are able to, if you really like this podcast, sponsor it with a dollar sum every episode. So one dollar, two dollars, or even more if you want. And that is sort of a contract between you guys and us. It's just like Kickstarter, but yeah, crowdfunding the podcast. And we need some money to uh, really take this to new heights. So we would very much appreciate that. Yeah, and I mean, we're not a weekly podcast at the moment, so that does help you guys when you decide what you're going to donate to us. We would really appreciate it. I mean, if you only decide to donate a dollar, we'll take it. We'll be more than happy with that, and that's only $2 a month for the most part. Um, You know, there are going to be those weird months where, you know, like you get three paychecks at work. Same deal. But, you know, like, so please help us out. We want this show to go on as long as possible, but... We do have a termination date, like, you know, and we're not close to it yet. Calm down. But, you know, we are going to reach a point where we're going to have to decide whether this is financially worth us doing. And you guys, our listeners, are the ones who's going to decide whether it is or not. And you're going to do that by going to patreon.com forward slash astronomy and, you know, giving us your dollars. We don't ask for much. We don't, you know, expect everyone to give it to us and... To be honest, if the decision is between giving us a couple bucks or feeding your children, uh, feed your children. Yeah, we, we should be clear that the podcast will always be free, but if you want to sponsor it, you have the option. Yeah, absolutely. We're not going to go to a subscription or anything, but, you know, we do have to eventually get something out of this. <laughs> yeah, this is pretty much the way I make my living. I do uh, nine podcasts, and 
Almost every one of them has a Patreon. So guys, step it up. <laughs> so we have a big news thing to talk about, though. And uh, we was going to talk about the asteroid belt, unfortunately, or fortunately, however you look at it. This is going, this happened, and this is the Trappist 7. And real, Trappist 1. Well, I'm calling them the Trappist 7, because there's seven planets around Trappist 1. Yes. And this is something that we've never seen before. No. Outside of our own solar system, and then even when you consider the subtleties between our solar system and their solar system, it's completely different. Yeah, we've seen seven planets in uh, other solar systems, but not like this. No, actually, the only solar system we've ever seen it in is ours, but not like this. So uh, the way we're going to do this is we have the NASA page pulled up, and we are going to read verbatim the article, and we're going to discuss what's going on here uh, between the article and, you know, what's actually happening. And, you know, we're going to put our two cents in on what we see going on and what we think is really cool about it. And... Mind you, we're morons, so uh, listen to the NASA parts more than us, I guess. I I, I don't know, but we're going to speculate. I need to, um, I need to correct you. What? Uh, HR uh, 8832 has seven planets really? as well. Yes. See, in this article here, it says... All right, we'll get to it. Uh, anyway. It's rare. It's very uh, rare. We'll go there. <laughs> HD 10.0180 also has seven planets, but two of them are still unconfirmed. Ha! Wait, 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 wait. We've never seen seven rocky planets around one no, star. No, definitely not. Okay. Both is close to each other. No. But uh, I'm going to go ahead and we're going to jump right into this article, and we will discuss as we go. Like I said, article starts, NASA Spitzer Space Telescope has revealed the first known system of seven Earth-sized planets around a single star. Three of these planets are firmly located in the habitable zone. The area around the parent star where the rocky planet is most likely to have liquid water. The discovery sets a new record for greatest number of habitable zone planets found around a single star outside of our own solar system. All of these seven planets could have liquid water, the key to life as we know it, under the right atmosphere conditions. But the chances are highest with the three in the habitable zone. The discovery could be a significant piece in the puzzle of finding habitable environments, places that are conductive to life, says Thomas Zerbuchin, Associate Administrator of the Agency's Space Mission Directorate in Washington. Answering the question, "We are we alone, is a top science priority in finding so many planets like these for the first time in a habitable zone is a remarkable step forward toward that goal. Forward and toward right after each other. Like, that that's actually kind of a bit of a tongue twister there. You know, I read fairly well, and that, like, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> so, the, we should start off real quick. Uh, Spitzer's Space Telescope, what is that exactly? Good question. Oh, geez, Dan, notes. I write them for a reason. <laughs> it's an infrared space telescope. Yeah, so this is a telescope that we launched in uh, 2003, and it had a planned mission of only 2.5 years. Yes. So it's lasted a lot longer than expected, but however, it is a mostly dead scope. Uh, the liquid helium that was used for cooling, it's gone. Um, and only the infrared cameras is operational, uh, until the cryogen runs out, which is pretty closely coming. It has an infrared array camera on it and that is what confirmed all of these. Yeah, and uh, the reason I was confused by Spitzer is that I uh, wanted to talk about the Trappist 
telescope which first discovered this system. Yeah, which is what the star is named after, uh, but the Spitzer is what confirmed it. Yeah, the Trappist discovered three planets in 2015, and uh, this is a uh, this was done by a team, uh, a Belgian team in Chile, because the Trappist telescope is in Chile, and I think the Belgians are have been very influential here, because this it stands Trappist stands for Transiting Planes and Planetesimals Small Telescope, but it did also a very good uh, Belgian beer. So uh, the telescope is named after Belgian beer. So the Belgian team was probably very involved there. Okay. But that was not that interesting because what Spitzer discovered made this system a lot more interesting. Yeah, I mean, and, and that's one of the fine things about science is uh, everything is double blind. If just Spitzer would have located this stuff, it wouldn't. No one would say that it was there. But because Trappist located it first and Spitzer was able to confirm it, we know that these are facts. Yes. Which is amazing. And what this is, is it's seven rocky planets circling one star. Three of them firmly, firmly within the habitable zone, uh, which we like to call the Goldilocks zone. Yes. And all could have liquid water depending on atmospheric conditions. I, I can't express enough how much that point must be emphasized. That is uh, quite interesting. Do, uh, should we talk a bit about the star itself first? Uh, that's in the next discussion point. Okay. <laughs> um, so why is the fact that all seven planets need liquid water? Yeah, because that's uh, a requirement for life as we know it. Yeah, so if we have seven planets that we think could have liquid water and we're looking for life, uh, um, one and one make three, right? Or wait, no, one and one make two. I, th- this is kind of a big deal. We're not going, we, we don't see things like this every day. I mean, count on your hand how many planets we know of with liquid water in our solar system. One, we know for sure. Yeah, we, we do have some liquid water on moons, but, uh, it's only on Mars. Yeah, and I mean, we have some geysers, you know, which, on like, uh, Pluto, but that's, I mean, yeah, there's liquid water somewhere on there, but it's not on the surface. No. So, interesting. So you have to be in this very narrow temperature band between 0 and 100 degrees Celsius to have liquid water. And then you have to have <laughs> enough atmospheric pressure as well. Right. And we don't know that yet. Yeah, we don't know. I mean, when we're saying atmospheric pressure, it's kind of like... You look at Mars, and, you know, we talked about Mars before, and because it has no atmosphere, all of the water just drifted away. Yes, or froze, um, or stuck in uh, the polar caps. Yeah, so, I mean, it's, we need the right atmosphere, we need a lot of things, and they're going to be doing things in the future to uh, prove, I guess would be a strong word. Uh, either way, <coughs> moving on in the article, about 40 light years, or... 235 trillion miles from Earth, the system of planets is relatively close to us in the constellation of Aquarius. Because they are located outside of our solar system, these planets are scientifically known as exoplanets. An exoplanet system, this exoplanet system is called TRAPPIST-1, named for the transiting planets of Planetesimal Small Telescope in Chile. In May 2016, researchers used TRAPPIST and using Trappist, announced 
they had discovered three planets in the system, assisted by several ground-based telescopes, including the European Southern Observatory's very large telescope. Yes, it's actually called that. Spitzer confirmed the existence of two of these planets and discovered five additional ones, increasing the number of known planets in the system to seven. The new results were published Wednesday in the Journal of Nature and announced at a news briefing at NASA's headquarters in Washington. Using Spitzer data, the team precisely measured the sizes of the seven planets and developed first es- estimates of the masses of six of them, allowing their density to be observed and estimated. <clears throat> I'm sorry. Based on their densities, all the TRAPPIST-1 planets are likely to be rocky. Further observations will not only help determine whether they are rich in water, but also possibly reveal whether they could have liquid water on their surface. The mass of the seventh and furthest exoplanet has not yet been estimated. Scientists believe it could be an icy snowball-like world, but further observations are needed. The seven wonders of TRAPPIST-1 are the first Earth-sized planets that have been found orbiting this kind of star, said Michel Guillon or Michael Gillian, depending on where he's from. <laughs> Lead author of the paper and the principal investigator of the Trappist Exoplanet Survey by the University of Like? Uh, works for me. Okay, in Belgium. <laughs> it is also the best target yet for studying the atmosphere as a potential habitable Earth-sized world. So, a lot to soak in there. Yeah. Uh, but the big one is the star itself, which is close, but not close. Yeah, this is 10 times further away than Proxima Centauri, the closest star. And this means that there are probably thousands of stars that are closer than this one. But it's still pretty close for the Milky Way. Yeah. So it's right right in our neighborhood. Yeah, it's weird. Like when they say 40 light years, you go, oh, that's not that far. But when you break <laughs> it down to miles and you go 235 trillion miles, so that's like 400 trillion kilometers. Yeah, with our current technology, it's not reasonable to get there. Yeah, I mean, this is a distance. So, I mean, it's not like we're going to be flying there anytime soon. It's not like we're going to be sending out space probes anytime soon. That would be kind of a waste of time. Like Proxima would probably be the better choice as far as studying goes with actual instruments we can send there. Absolutely. But, I mean, this is something that, you know, as space uh, traveling technology goes, would be an excellent candidate for us to actually go to. So, Dan, do you have anything to add after reading over all that stuff? You already talked about the Trappist being a uh, beer. Yeah, can I talk about the star now? Yes, this is the star time. (laughs) So, this star is tiny. It's about half the size of uh, Proxima Centauri, which is a really small red dwarf. Uh, We have about 84 Jupiter masses in Trappist-1, and that is below... Uh, the level for red dwarf. So this kind of star is called an ultra-cooled dwarf, spectral class M8. So it's almost a brown dwarf, but not really. So it seems to be on all the time. Brown dwarfs sometimes just shut down, and that's, of course, really bad for life. But this thing is on all the time, but it's really cool for a star. Its uh, surface temperature is uh, 2,550 kelvins, which is uh, about 1,000 degrees uh, Less hot than uh, Proxima Centauri B, and a lot uh, cooler than uh, the sun. And this means you you get this habitable zone really, really close to the star. It's also very young. Trappist-1 is somewhere between 500 million and a billion years old. And if it is 500 million years old, it, the, the solar system around it could still be forming. 
But it um, apparently it has much less mass than our solar system, so it might be done by this point. Yeah, I mean, this thing is, sometimes they refer to these M-class uh, stars, these M8-class stars, as substellar objects. Yeah, for, for reference, uh, Proxima Centauri is an M6, and that's like, then you are really a red dwarf. You get your red dwarf license. Yeah, this thing is small. Uh, it's barely, it, this, I, I want to say it compares to about eight, Jupiter's. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's volume is about the same as Jupiter, but it's 84 times the mass. Yeah, right. Um, so it's so that, that's an effect of uh, how stars form. So Jupiter is like the same volume as a star, but far le- far uh, far too little mass in it. Yeah, not it, enough crap. Yeah, Trappist One has a very high metallicity, higher than the Sun, and it's about five percent as luminous as the Sun. And that's why the planets need to be really close to get enough heat. Yes, which we are about to talk about. So let's move on in this article real quick. And this is where the meat is. This is where we're going to talk for a while about this. In contrast to our own sun, the Trappist-1 star classified as an ultra-cold dwarf, as Dan just said, is so cold that liquid water could survive on the planets orbiting it very close to it, closer than is possible on planets in our solar system. All seven of the TRAPPIST-1 planetary orbits are closer to their host star than Mercury is to our sun. The planets also are very close to each other. If a person was standing on one of the planet's surface, they could gaze up and potentially see geological features or even clouds on neighboring worlds, which would sometimes appear larger than the moon in the Earth's sky. The planets, yeah, the planets may also be tidally locked to their star, which means that the same side of the planet will always be facing their star. Therefore, each side is either perpetually day or night. This could mean that they would have weather patterns, patterns totally unlike those on Earth, such as strong winds blowing from the day side to the night side and extreme temperature changes. Spitzer, an infrared telescope that trails Earth as it orbits the sun, was well suited for studying Trappist because of the star glows brightest in infrared light, whose wavelengths are longer than the eye can see. In the fall of 2016, Spitzer observed Trappist-1 nearly continuously for 500 hours. Spitzer is uniquely positioned in its orbit to observe enough crossing transits of the planets in front of the host star to reveal the complex architecture of the system. Engineers optimized Spitzer's ability to observe transiting planets during Spitzer's war mission, which began after the spacecraft's coolant ran out, as planned after the first five years of operation. This is the most exciting result I have seen in the 14 years of Spitzer operation, said Sean Carey. Sean Carey, I'm sorry, manager of NASA's Spitzer Science Center at Caltech IPAC in Pasadena, California. Spitzer will follow up in the fall to further refine our understanding on these planets so that the James Woods Space Telescope can follow up. More observations of the systems are sure to reveal more secrets. Following up on the Spitzer discovery, NASA's Hubble Telescope has initiated the screening of four of the planets, including the three inside the habitable zone. These observations aim at assessing the presence of puffy, hydrogen-dominant atmospheres typical for gaseous worlds like Neptune around these planets. So there's a lot there. Yeah. Uh, we'll start right there on paragraph one, where, you know, these things are going to appear larger to the naked eye than our moon does. It's so weird. Imagine that you're standing on the surface of your planet in Trappist-1 and you see the other planets. It, it just, it would be so awkward to watch a storm form 
on a planet next to you. Like, oh, wow, they're getting rain over there. That doesn't make no sense. <laughs> it's pretty amazing. Uh, B and C, like the first and the second planet, they are about 1.6 the distance between the Earth and the Moon apart. And that's super close. Yeah, when you're talking, you know, um, the you stick an Earth next to the Earth at that distance, like, that's mind-boggling. Yeah, if you've seen the, the pictures of the Earth from the Moon, that's kind of the the size of uh, these planets on the night sky. Or even on the day sky. Yeah, it's absolutely unreal. And when we're talking about how close these things are together, which, you know, we were kind of mumbling about this before we even started this, yeah. was the gravitational pull. Like, you would think, and Dan has a pretty good explanation as to why it doesn't happen, but you would think that you have these planets so close to each other that the gravity must play havoc on each other, but strangely, they don't. Yeah, I think the, the best example of a system like this in our solar system is actually the four Galilean moons of Jupiter. We haven't talked about them yet, but it is believed that uh, Jupiter once had like 30 moons of that size, and it killed almost all of them. But Io, Europa, and Ganymede, they are pretty close to Jupiter, but they survived by uh, resonance uh, rotations around uh, around the planet. So there is a resonance system here where the planets have settled down, pulling on each other and sort of finding their orbits. So it seems to be uh, stable. Yeah, it's like each planet is a Trojan of each other. Yes. And that's how they're keeping themselves flowing in the sky. And I think a very important thing to understand there are that these things, the, the seventh planet, H, it's the one we know the least about. Right. But it's it's about 0.63 AU from the star. And that's five times closer to the star than Mercury is to the sun. So all of these things sit around the star super close. And a year on Trappist B is only one and a half days. Ooh, that's fast. <laughs> that's, uh, well, while the sixth planet, uh, G, has uh, 12 days in a year. <laughs> so it's like 12 Earth days. Yeah, that's, that's fast. Um, now... They may be, moving on to the second paragraphs in this uh, article, they may be tidally locked. And we've talked before about what tidally locking is and, you know, true title face, or true title lock, uh, phase locking, all these different types of locks. Um, yes. We could hope that they're phase locked, but that really isn't that different than a true title lock. We could hope that they're a 2-3 lock, yeah. which would give it some spin. Uh, once again, if we look at the Jupiter system, they are all tidally locked. And if the, if these seven planets are not tidally locked yet, they probably will be. You would think at some point. The system is still young. Yeah, you would think at some point that they would, the gravitational pull of the sun would slow them down eventually, but craziness, craziness, craziness. We could hope that good things are going on there, but we don't really know, uh, unfortunately. Now, with these being so close, as we had said earlier, um, you would think that if they have water, they should have a very strange result on each other, huh, Dan? Yeah, they should definitely have tidal effects on each other. So imagine uh, something much bigger than the moon. Uh, looking at B and C, for example, B is 0 0.85 Earth mass, and C is 1.38 Earth mass. So you have these things much bigger than the moon, almost as close as the moon, so it would create enormous tides on each other when they but they don't rotate each other so when c passes b there's like whoa tidal wave yeah you would think that it would cause some craziness like living like 
here on Earth, we have cities like New York. Right there, right on the edge of the ocean. Yeah, you're not doing that here. The, it's like, oh, the sea is coming. Run for the hills. Yeah, the tides would destroy these cities. So it would be, if for, say, some reason, and like Dan said, this is a very young system. But if for some reason there was intelligent life there, they would not, by any stretch of the imagination, put their cities right on the oceans, because then we couldn't call them intelligent life. <laughs> no, and the sea comes around like every second day. <laughs> it's like, no. Yeah, it'd be bad. It would be really bad. And this works the whole way out. It, it just... So nuts. Um, two, two problems with the, the star. First, uh, red dwarfs, uh, when they are young, are very flary. It, like, erupts all the time. It's, it has tantrums. And this thing is so small, but I still think it would have eruptions that could uh, vaporize the water on the planets. Uh, worst case. Worst case. Uh, hopefully, though, I mean, they are close. So there is a chance that these things could have very strong magnetospheres. And that would quasi-protect them. Yes, it would. Um, we also have in our own solar system, we, when we were 500 million years old, we still had uh, late heavy bombardment going on. So that was a bad time to live in our solar system. But that might have been caused by uh, Jupiter moving around, and we don't have any gas giants in this system causing havoc. Yeah, which is helpful. So, I mean, because... If there was a gas giant, I don't think that these planets would be as close to the sun as I would think that the furthest one away, what is that, H? Uh, yes. I, I believe H, unless the gas giant was way out there, but if it's too far out there, it's not going to be pulled by the gravitational pull of its uh, parent star. But I would think it would be, I think it would pull H and probably G out towards Italy. That all depends on where, where it would be. But, right. Uh, yeah, being this close to Earth and now us looking so much in the system, I think if there's a gas giant, it has to be pretty far out. It would have to be like around where Jupiter is here or even our, maybe our asteroid belt, but not any closer than that. Yeah, I think, I imagine that we could detect a gas giant around Trappist 1 at uh, Jupiter distance. I'm pretty sure we would have found it. I'm not sure. It. Now I'm just speculating. Yeah, I'm pretty sure we would have found it if it was there. I'm thinking like Planet Nine out. Oh wow, that's way out there. I don't know if it could be that far out and still. I could. These uh, these things are often binary, and they when they are tied to another star, it can be really far away. Well, if it's another star, I can see it, but I, I don't know with an, a planet, even yeah, a gas the, giant. The size object could be quite far out. I think. Okay. Okay. If, if, all right. I'll I'll go with it. Um. You know more about this stuff than I do. I will. Or maybe I'm just making this up, but that's my guess. <laughs> okay. Uh, and then we don't know about asteroids and stuff here, how much uh, junk there is sipping around in the system. No, we don't know if any of these planets have moods. Yeah, that's interesting. Speculant. Could they retain their moon with I... these similar-sized planets sipping by so close? I don't know. I mean... Could I... you even have a situation where they exchange moons? That, that would be possible, like a moon doing a figure eight around a couple of them. I can see them having Trojans before moons. Yes. Yeah. Because having all these things so close is going to create a lot of just strange spots where gravity just kind of cancels everything out. Yeah. So I can see that, but I don't know about moons because... If any asteroid is supposed to survive around <laughs> within 0 0.06 um, AUs of the star, it has to have some relationship to the planets. 
has to be Trojan or a moon, pretty much. I would think as much. And, I mean, if you live here in the United States, and I know that everyone who listens to this doesn't, but you know that one of the big things is people complain about, you know, the amount of money spent on NASA and a bunch of different places. Well, this is how important this discovery was. They put 500 continuous hours. And to do the math, that's 21 days. So that's almost... A fifteenth of the budget that we give, you know, them to operate that machine was put on this one thing. Wow. That's, that's pretty crazy when you think about it because, you know, they usually don't, when NASA likes to do missions, they like to get results quickly because yep. it costs money to do things for extended periods of time. And the, them doing it for 21 days straight is pretty, pretty, uh, Interesting to me, like that, that, that says that there's a lot of neatness going on here that, you know, the people at NASA, the people ten times smarter than me says, we absolutely have to watch this. Yeah, I've never seen a NASA announcement that was so excited. Uh, I almost thought they were going to announce the discovery of life on an exoplanet. So did I. I, I actually, I thought that they, they was going to say was they found the markers. Yeah. For, you know, like, uh, you know, like they're looking, it says in the last paragraph about hydrogen dominated atmospheres. That's what we have. Yes. And they are definitely turning other telescopes on the system now, trying to look for uh, greenhouse gas. Yeah. I mean, they said that atmospheres. Hubble's going to start looking at it. But like, I mean, the reason they want to find hydrogen dominant atmospheres is because, well, we know that that's what helped us create, you know, have life. Because yes, it, and we think that uh, ozone or methane could, uh, um, are very likely signs of life. Yeah. That's what they're looking for, too. Yeah, I mean, if you have hydrogen, then you could say, well, there could be plants there. And if yeah. there's plants there, then what we know from our own hist- history is the plants then oxygenate the uh, the atmosphere. Because yes. that, uh, oxygen was not on Earth at one point. This was all hydrogen around us, and the plants changed enough of it that we can use the oxygen. Yeah, because we only have this. Uh, yeah, sorry, go ahead. I was just gonna say, like, you know, if you have too much oxygen on a planet, there's a bad side effect. Dan, do you know what that bad side effect is? Um, no. Fires in the sky. <laughs> Sweet. Quite literally, fires in the sky. Oxygen is a very flammable uh, gas, and if we didn't use it, and it was still nothing but plants, this is kind of one of the weird things. Like plants came to Earth. And it began to oxygenate the sky. And if an organism didn't come around, like us and, you know, every other animal on the planet that we know of as a walking animal didn't use the oxygen up, it would reach a point where there was too much oxygen in the sky, and literally the world would burn. Oh my God. <laughs> I, That's why we settled for 20%. Yes. Yeah, if we got to like 30, it'd be terrible. <laughs> oh, my God. You know, as bad as five would be for us, you know, because we couldn't breathe, or ten, we couldn't breathe, 30, the, the world would burn. Yeah. You know, like striking a match would be like a federal crime. <laughs> <laughs> a strike of lightning would destroy cities. Yes. Uh, this is, oh, so, I mean, th- that is the, the big reason why they're looking for hydrogen-dominated atmospheres. Um, I don't know why they said, you know, like ga- found around gaseous worlds like Neptune, um, yeah, that's typical for places like Neptune, but it's also a marker of life. Yeah. So, so, and now we'll move on to the last 
section of this, and then me and Dan will talk about all the craziness that comes along with this, because I'm sure he wants to talk about colonizing this, because he wants to talk about colonizing everything. (laughs) (laughs) This is pretty far off the colonizing plan right now. (laughs) It's a little far off, but there are some benefits to the idea of this. But in May 2016, the Hubble team observed two of the innermost planets and found no evidence of such puppy atmospheres. This strengthened the case that the planets closest to the star are rocky in nature. The TRAPPIST-1 system provides one of the best opportunities in the next decade to study the atmospheres around Earth-sized planets, says Nicole Lewis, co-leader of the Hubble study and astronomer at the Space Telescope Science Institute in good old Baltimore, Maryland. NASA's planet-hunting Kepler Space Telescope also is studying the TRAPPIST-1 system, making measurements of the star's minuscule changes in brightness due to transiting planets. Orbiting as a K-2 mission, the spacecraft's observations will allow astronomers to refine the properties of the known planets as well as search for additional planets in the system. The K-2 observations conclude in early March and will be made available on the public archive. And there is a link... uh, to a public archive, and they are keeping up with it constantly. So go on the NASA site, find the article. Maybe we can link it in the show notes. I don't know, Dan. And then you can go onto the public archive, and you can keep up with this, you know, check back every month or so. Spitzer, Hubbler, Hubble, and Kepler will help astronomers plan for follow-up studies using NASA's upcoming James Webb Space Telescope launching in 2018. With much greater sensitivity, Webb will be able to detect the chemical fingerprints of water, methane, oxygen, ozone, and other components in the planet's atmosphere. Webb will also analyze planets' temperatures and surface pressures, key factor in accessing their habitability. NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California, manages the Spitzer Space Telescope mission for NASA's science mission. Directorate Science Operations are concluded at the Spitzer Science Center at Caltech in Pasadena, California. Spacecraft operations are based at Lockheed Martin Space Systems Company, Littleton, Colorado. Data are archived at the Infrared Science Archive housed in Caltech IPAC. Caltech manages JPL for NASA. For more information about Spitzer, blah, 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 blah. Okay, so um, there's a lot of links here. We'll try to stick all these into the show notes when we go about it because, you know, it's like the Spitzer link, the Trappist link, uh, information on exoplanets and what have you. So they find... Yeah, of course, we will also update this story when when new data comes out. Oh, absolutely. As we, as we do with Proxima Centauri. Absolutely. So uh, at least the American science community and NASA... And I'm sure, you know, the other countries will jump into this as quickly as they are, you know, able. Uh, they're throwing everything at it. Yeah. Four telescopes, four crazy telescopes doing more nothing. More will come out very soon. Yeah, doing nothing but staring at them. Like, <laughs> that's absurd. Yeah. And it's kind of like what you said. Like, you were shocked at how uh, they, how enthusiastic they was to release this information. I don't remember, and now mind you, I wasn't alive during the moon landing, but I don't remember them throwing a uh, a news conference out like this. Oh, they have, but I don't remember it, they doing it uh, this way with this so with so much pre-announcement and like, whoa, this is super big. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like you know, they do do news conferences, but not like this. Right. Like this was almost like you know a president coming out and saying we're going to invade you know Canada. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, th- th- this was a big deal. Every news station was tuned into it because, like, they sold it before we ever got 
any idea what was it, what they was going to announce. Yeah. So, um, Dan, I know you want to talk about colonizing. Yeah, I, th- uh, I think it's very early to talk about colonizing this because we know so little. But uh, one important fact I want to mention is... When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. That with our current rocket technology, it would take about two, three days to jump between these planets. And if they have atmospheres that are good for breaking spacecraft, then it would be really easy for us, if we were in Trappist-1 today, to travel between these worlds. This is not uh, as complicated as going to Mars. And we we have the technology to go to Mars. We just don't do it because it's expensive. But between these worlds, you could just hop around, which is kind of exciting to think about. It, I, I'm pretty negative about the probability of life here. We have the tidal locking. We have the erupting star. Uh, yeah, I'm not. The system is so young, but we only have the one single example of life in the universe from the Earth. So we don't really know how long it really takes to form life and what the uh, what the, the variables are for life creation. So it's not impossible. Yeah, I mean, I know we chatted a little bit before the show about uh, you're pretty down on is there a chance that there's life there. I personally believe that there's that life is a lot more common than we give it credit for. Just because we haven't found it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Like we think that there might be life on Mars. Yeah, if we find life on Europa, for example, the moon of Jupiter, which is still, I think, the most likely place in the solar system. Yeah. Then all bats are off. Then, like, whoa, two examples. Yeah, right. So then, then life could be super common. I mean, I, I think that life, I mean, especially because when you look at some of these, uh, like space rocks that, you know, they take out there and, you know, bring back and the flu survives. You know what I mean? Like, it survives the trip in outer space and back. And, you know, I just feel like life is a lot more, a lot more rugged than we give it credit for. So I think that there could be life on these planets. I don't expect them to be Uh, intelligent life. No, that would be very quick. Yeah, that would be astonishing. And we would have to change all understanding of what, how rare intelligent life is. I, 
No question. But I think unless they have been colonized. Possible. Uh bacterial life I do expect to find as native. Um and maybe even plants. Uh I have to add something about life. Uh, we still don't really know how life is created. We have managed to reconstruct the um, we have managed to create in in the 50s the essential amino acids for life. Yep. But the spark itself, the the ability to make them live still eludes us. Uh, so, so like step two, we can't figure out. L- let me fill you in real quick, Dan. Yeah. Okay. You get a man, you get a woman. They go into their bedroom and they do the naughty thing. And then <laughs> yeah, nine months like, later, <laughs> and then nine months later, life comes out. <laughs> but I have to practice this. That's, this is how you make life. Okay. <laughs> and then, then after you've done that, you go to Trappist One and voila, you have life there. Yeah. Um, it's kind of the weird thing. Like, I mean, it will be hard to decipher whether there is life. But if we were to colonize this, and I know this thing is so far away that for us to do that, we uh, would need new propulsion technology or we would need to learn to fold space, which that's something we're going to get into way down the road. <laughs> yeah. If you also think about, like, the future on a age of the universe scale, uh the smaller star is, the longer it lives, and this thing will live forever. So that will live uh, at least a thousand times the age of the universe. So that's so, a bonus. Yeah, so that life will appear in Trappist One at some point is uh, much more likely than it's there now. Yeah, and if we were to colonize it, that would be a bonus. We wouldn't yeah. have to worry about this star blowing up on us. No, once it settles down, like Proxima, Centa- Proxima Centauri B is about ten times, it's about five million, five billion years old, and it's still not settled down. But once the star settles down, it's uh, it's a pretty nice place. Yeah, I mean, so there there is bonuses there. One of the bonuses that you talked about earlier was that we could jump from one to another if yeah. the need be. Um, so mining and things like that, you know, imagine that'd be so cool to do that on a cosmic scale, because you know, like. There would be the one planet that would be like the planet. And the rest of them, you know, they would all be mining colonies. It would be like a bad episode of Gundam Wing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. So, I mean, that's cool. You know, if you're running out of uh, materials on one planet, you just go to the next one and get them there. Yeah. Uh, the gravity on the planets are pretty varying a lot, but they are all they're all bigger than Mars. And two of them are bigger than the Earth. Yeah, so they wouldn't be overly different than what we are used to. Yeah, and I don't think... Yeah, we know the radius of them. Oh, yeah, they know the size of them all. Yeah. Except for the well, last The radius one. and the mass. We can calculate the gravity, but I don't have that in front of me. Aw, Dan. <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's Earth-like. It's all better than Mars. Yes. Yeah. And, I mean, watching the sunset there would be really cool. Yeah, watching those planets sit by would be really cool. Yeah, that's that, that's more what I was thinking, you know, when you just, you know, oh, it's 2 o'clock, zip, and it's gone. <laughs> and there's the tidal wave. Ah. Yeah, now everyone grab your umbrellas. <laughs> so, I mean, it would be, I'm excited for this discovery. I think that there's a lot, a lot of possibilities here. I mean, there's a lot that we can shoot down pretty quickly like in the next couple years but until that time when all that data comes back there's a lot of cool speculation we can do you know it it just it would be wonderful to be in nasa watching this data come in 
And this once again reminds me, we are truly in the golden age of astronomy. Like 25 years ago, we didn't even know if there were exoplanets. But now these things happen. We get this. We got Proxima Satori B recently and then this one. And it's like more more exciting news to come. Yeah, and we should uh, take a minute to talk about this James Webb Space Telescope that is launching next year. All right. Um, this thing is the most powerful telescope we will ever send, that we have ever sent into space. I don't want to say that we will ever. And this thing can detect at distances that are unbelievable the smallest things. So when they say chemical fingerprints of water, like they're going to be able to look at a planet 40 light years away and detect water. I mean, yeah, it's really cool when you hear them say that, and you go, yeah, that's NASA. But, I mean, think about if they tasked you, the listener, personally, to go out there and figure out a way to come up with I mean, we're just piggybacking off of the information. We don't know how to do any of this crap. (laughs) I want to mention one more exciting thing about this system. With the the star so close to these Earth-like planets, this could probably be an excellent opportunity to detect the first exomoons, because we still don't have, we still haven't detected an exomoon. That's a moon around an exoplanet in another solar system. But we have four ways that could be applied to Trappist-1 over time that could maybe work. So we could use Kepler. Uh, we could detect tugs from exomoons on these planets when we get to know them better and have more data. Uh, we could also see an exomone transit Trappist-1, and because Trappist-1 is so small, this could be detectable. There could be a dip in the observed light of Trappist-1 from a big exomoon of one of these planets. Yeah. And we could also get gravitational microlensing for these exomoons. So this is an excellent place to detect an exomoon. I would think that it would be a lot like observing Venus in our sky today, where you would look at one point and you'd go, all right, there was a dot there. Yeah. Okay, there's a dot on the other side X hours later. Like, there's something shooting around that. But that's, I mean, it would be an excellent opportunity if these things have moons. We don't that know that they do. Oh. So it's, I'm hoping that James Wood would be, or James Webb. Why do I keep calling it James Wood? <laughs> I must have knew a James Wood at some point in my life. I don't know, but I actually, yeah, right. I actually wrote that in the notes a couple times and had to go back and uh, switch it <laughs> because I'm like, it's James Webb. Why do I keep calling it? Um, but at any rate, we need to be sure that there are a moon first. I'm hoping that the James Webb telescope will be able to detect that quicker than these other ones. I can't wait till that thing launches. Oh, that would be great. Yeah. Um, if you go on the NASA website, the original page for this, there is a uh, VR surface of planet Trappist D in a 360 view. So you're able to, you know, like really look around and get a good glimpse of it. There's tons of information on it, more than we've gone over in this show. But, you know, we're not the uh, the actual astrophysicists. So we're just reading what we see and we're contemplating the possibilities. Yeah. Absolutely cool. Do you have anything else about this subject that we need to talk about before I bring up the fact that I'm a fuck up? <laughs> yes, one more thing about exomoons. The, the most exciting exomoons, just like in our our own solar systems, are probably the ones orbiting gas giants. But um, and that's not uh, a thing here, and they are much harder to detect. So then I think I'm done with Trappist One for the time being. Yeah, for the time being, we will absolutely come back to this because I'm as excited at at this as Dan is about Centauri. Yes. Oh, it's so close. 
I mean, I this. Yeah, yeah. One more thing then. As with Proxima Centauri, <clears throat> if there is vegetation on these planets, it's all black. If the title locking ideas hold. Or wait, no, 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 no. no you're right oh, because a, the color no, of the mood or the color of the weak, weak star. You need to get as much heat as possible. So yeah. the black forests are there too. Oh boy, Hobbit ninjas. Yes. They found their way back into the show. Amazing. Yep. Okay, so I'm an idiot. Uh, I'm willing to accept all emails saying that I am. When we talked about the moons a few weeks ago, I misunderstood something about it, and I passed bad information on to you guys, and I feel terrible about that. And anytime we screw up, we're going to tell you that we screwed up as soon as we find out that we did screw up. Luckily, I didn't find out from one of our listeners. I found out just from my studies. Um all the craters on the moon are round, regardless of the impact direction that came in. I recently said that depending, you know, some of them came in at an angle and they created ranges. They do have ranges on the moon, but these happen because of multiple impacts close to each other. So if you have four impacts fairly close to each other going in one direction, like straight up, you're going to get what looks like a ridge range on the one side. Now, the reason this happens is because... These things have kinetic energy explosions the second they hit. It's like throwing a snowball against a wall, okay? It doesn't matter what angle you throw that snowball against the wall. If you throw it hard enough, it blows up and sticks the same way. So I'm an idiot. Uh, a little bit of physics would have told me that I was, and I didn't look into it closely enough, and I went off of my own kind of uh, understanding of things, and forgot about kinetic explosions. So I'm sorry about that. Um, D- Dan gets a chance to harass me now. Go for it. No, I will I will try to, in the, the grandeur of my heart, find the ability to forgive you. Uh, so I'll work on that. I mean, it's an easy leap to make, but I still feel bad for putting out bad information. Again, anytime we screw up, we will let you know. Yes, and if you hear us screwing up, please correct us. Yeah, we we don't want to put out bad information for anybody. Please let us know if we screw up. Um, I am embarrassed that I screwed up this time, so I'm sorry. I will try like hell not to let it happen again, but I promise you it will. Uh, probably. Yeah, I mean, there's just too much out there. I don't know everything about uh, space, but I do study it enough that I should have known better. I, I really should have. Damn, I feel so bad. So after I uh, pour my heart out there and... Absolutely sound like a scared child. Uh, <laughs> oh, the tweets. I hope they come. Uh, we're going to take a real quick break here, and then we're going to be back where I have uh, some words for some people. Yes, you do. And they're not going to be kind. So go ahead and listen to this Facebook plug, and we'll be back in a moment. Hello. Are you enjoying the show so far? I hope you are. Well, if so, I encourage you all to pause the show. Don't worry. We'll wait. Go to facebook.com forward slash fan of astronomy and hit that like button. You'll be one of the first people to know when a new episode comes out. Also on that page, the guys post articles on the latest news in the astronomy field and outer space in general. You also get to interact with the hosts of our show, Dan and Angelo there. So please hit that like button on Facebook. Thanks. Okay, so here's the deal. In the past, when I've done other podcasts, I've had these moments and I don't do a lot of these, even though I could probably do one every show on everything that I ever do. They lose their they lose their punch when you do them too often. But once in a while, people piss me off. And when they piss me off, I feel the need to let them know that they pissed me off. And I kind of go on these rants. Again, I didn't even know if I was going to bring them to this show. I didn't see how it was relevant. How could we possibly bring my rants 
to a show about astronomy. And then this week happened, or this past week, however you want to look at it. A man, uh, Kyrie Irving, he is the point guard for the world champion, NBA champion, however you want to look at it, Cleveland Cavaliers, came out and said that the earth was flat. Okay, earth's flat. All right. And then uh, Draymond Green from the another basketball player, I believe he plays for the Golden State Warriors. He said the same thing, basically. He didn't flat out say it. He kind of said that, you know, Draymond might be, or not Draymond, Draymond's the one who said this. Kyrie might be onto something. And that bothered me a lot more than it should, but it does. And then, you know, for you wrestling fans, uh, AJ Styles, world famous wrestler, he came out and said kind of the same thing. Now, I am a very forgiving human being. I believe that everybody has an opinion. Everyone is entitled to their opinion. I don't care what said opinion is, but you don't have the right to have your own goddamn facts. You cannot in any way hand me beeswax and say that it came from a grizzly bear's ass. That doesn't happen. Okay, so when these people propagate something like the flat earth, uh, I don't know what you want to call it, conspiracy, because that's what these people seem to fucking think, is that NASA and the U.S. government, you know, completely excluding the fact that there's thousands upon thousands, if not millions, of amateur astronomers who don't have anybody who they have to answer to, all say that the world is flat. And here's the thing. You don't need to go into outer space and look back to see that the Earth is round. All you have to do is get on a boat. You don't even need to fucking fly. You need to be on a boat. You go in one direction. After you've gone in said direction for so long, you end up exactly back where you started. Why? Because the worst fucking round, okay? <laughs> now, you would think that, you know, oh, it's just some basketball player, blah, 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 blah. Well, first off, Kyrie Irving is a, he went to Duke University. This is one of the educational hubs of the United States. This man should be smarter than this. Plain and simple. No ifs, ands, or fucking buts about it. And why should I care that, you know, this ra- these three random people believe that the earth is flat? It's because they are people of impact. Children look up to these people, okay? And by them propagating this bogus idea that the earth is fucking flat, what they're doing is making the next generation of kids stupid. You have the right to be stupid if you want to be stupid, but don't make the next people stupid. If you have something stupid to say, keep your mouth shut, especially if you're in a position where you can influence others. That's wrong. That's damaging to society because while you're not in a position to have any real power and possibly create legislation that, you know, that says the way the country or the world is going to go forward, the next generation kids, one of them might, and that's fucking dangerous. And that's where the problem is. You know, it's bad enough that we've let science slip in many societies across the country, including the United States, to the point where people can actually fucking believe the world is flat. But when you have people who are who have enough status and kids look up to them to continue to go on and propagate this idea, it's just wrong. Now, I know Kyrie Irving's not listening into this. And the truth is, why would he? He has better things to do with his time. Although, you can send it to him if, you know, by chance you happen to know him. Because the earth is round. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about this. You cannot say that, you know, again, back to the grizzly bear thing. I mean, you just, 
There are certain things you can't argue. Look, if you want to argue politics, I can argue politics with you all day, okay? Because politics is just a way of you, you form into a political party based on the way that you want to see, you want to live, and then you push the way you want to live onto other people. That's what politics is, whether you really want to hear that or not. Science is different. Science is based in fact. There's no opinions there. You can have, you know, opinions on things when they have not become flat fact. You can't tell me that, you know, oh my God, there's just so many things like, you know, milk comes from a cow. Milk comes from a mammal. That's where milk comes from. You can't hand me shark shit and say that it's milk. Just plain and simple, when you see these flat earth people, I chastise the shit out of them when they show up on my Facebook page, and I would hope that you people would ridicule them just the same. Now, that does not mean that you shut them up or, you know, everything else, but you make them understand how stupid they sound. There is no wall of ice at the end of the world holding everything together. Just think about how fucking stupid that sounds. I mean, really. There's a wall of ice out there. That makes no goddamn sense. If the Earth's flat, that, that can't happen. Some of these people still believe that the Earth is the center of the universe. And these flat earthers believe that because without that, that doesn't, it doesn't work. The math doesn't work. And some of the reasons, I mean, if you go up in a plane high enough, yes, if you're in just a local commuter plane, you're not going to see the curvature of the Earth. I'm sorry. The Earth's really fucking big. But, if for some reason you were in a plane that, you know, goes across seas and what have you, if you look out the window, you can see the curvature of the earth. I've seen it. I, 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 I've seen it. It's there. And some of these people, they use this example of this one guy who, uh, some rap guy, I, I don't remember his name, who was standing on top of a mountain and he could see Manhattan and he shouldn't have been able to. Well, he forgot to mention that he could see buildings taller than like 15 stories or 16 stories or something like that in Manhattan. He couldn't see the actual island. Why? Because I was fucking around. Oh, please, this bothers me more than it should. But round Earth, come on. Earth's round. You don't have to tell. Don't don't lie to yourself that the Earth's flat. And if you have a friend that believes the Earth is flat, it is up to you. As somebody of common sense, I hope you have common sense if you're listening, to prove to them that it is, in fact, round. And I don't care what way you come up with to prove it to them, but we have to because... These people are becoming people of influence, and that's a problem. You you have the right to be stupid. You don't have the right to pass your stupid on. So, Dan, um, that was a little shorter than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> yeah, I have no objections. I uh, yeah, if you believe the Earth is flat, you don't like facts. Uh, but I did look up the origin of this, and uh, it's a former theory called the Setetic Method which like places emphasis on your sensory observations over irritating things such as math or facts. <laughs> math, and physics, here, you know, the, the things that yeah. make things work. Gotcha. So here is the flat earth theory in short. So the earth is a disk. The Arctic is in the center. Uh-huh. Antarctica is a 150 foot tall wall of ice, like only half the size of the wall in Game of Thrones. And it's guarded by NASA employees, so uh, to prevent people from climbing over and falling off the disc. You get day and night by uh, having a sun and a moon that are actually spheres, and they are the same size as you can clearly see. They are 51 kilometers across, 
and they move in circles about uh, 4,800 kilometers above the plane of the Earth. When you have the stars about a little higher, and then you get this uh, nice illumination of the Earth, but uh, this can't explain solar eclipses, so you have to add an anti-moon that you can't see that just moves in front of the moon sometime. Of course, you don't have gravity. Gravity is an illusion. Uh, stuff accelerates uh, downwards because the, the disk of the Earth is actually accelerating upwards at 9.8 meters per second squared. Uh, and that is because of dark energy. Whoa! So, and that means that the Earth will eventually reach the speed of light. Which is a bad thing. Yeah, I mean, and I've also seen that our planet is being accelerated upwards because it's on the back of a turtle. <laughs> Standing on a turtle, right? It's on, on the, it's on the shell of a turtle. A giant cosmic fucking turtle. Now, now they're taking a lot of science words there. And they're putting them together and using them however in the fuck they want. But the fact that they have to come up with anti-moons, you can't see these moons, but they exist. And that's what holds their fucking theory together? I'm sorry, but that's too far of a goddamn leap rather than just take the facts we have and go, yeah, all that shit makes sense. I didn't have to add nothing crazy to it. Yeah, I would be really surprised if any listener of this show uh, believes that the Earth is flat, because kind of astronomy becomes very uninteresting if you believe the Earth is flat. Well, this is the thing. Like, it doesn't matter. I don't think the listeners of our show actually believe that the Earth is flat. I don't. My thing is, I'm sure that they know people who think that. And the only reason I say this is because these people show up in my Facebook. Wow. They show up on my Twitter. So if the people I interact with, I come across these goddamn people. Then I'm sure other people come across. And, you know, th this is my problem with the whole alternative facts thing. There are no yes. alternative facts. There's facts and there's bullshit. Yes. <laughs> and this is bullshit. <laughs> oh, yes. You know, one of the things that I think trips people up, and it's people who don't understand science enough, is that when we come to what we refer to as fact, we, it's called theory. Yeah, yeah, I was just about to say that. That's like the Big Bang theory and uh, yeah, the theory of relativity. It's not, it's not hypothetical. It's yeah. proven theories. No, when we call it a theory, it's, it's not. People think that a theory is something that we're still working out. No, no, no. That's a hypothesis. Exactly. When you're sitting there, you know, with your buddies and you're trying to come up with, you know, how to beat some monster in some D&D &D game or something, you go, I have a theory. You're using that word wrong. Yes. Okay? You have a hypothesis. An idea is not a theory. A theory is a fact. And yes. it's as close to a th The reason we don't call them hard facts is because nothing in science they consider truly hard facts. And that gives people wiggle room to come up with crazy shit like this. Yeah. Where if you just said, yeah, this is a hard fact. I mean, nobody argues, you know, if you pick up the Crayola crayon that says blue on it, you don't argue that that's actually green. But no. technically, the theory is it's blue. Yes. I think a good example of this is the theory of gravity, as explained by Newton. In, in itself, it's correct. But uh, on certain scales, it breaks down and needs the theory of relativity to to work. Yeah, and it also needs, you know, dark matter and dark energy to make it work completely on the grandest of scales. So, yes. I mean, yeah, I mean, we have facts. And, you know, I think the Earth being round, you don't even have to get into things like the theory of 
of relativity or the theory of gravity. Like, you don't have to get into that complicated of a thing. The Earth's round. We have pictures of it. And those pictures aren't... And this is one of the things, okay? They say that all the pictures, okay, are... One of the problems they have with it is they're all multiple pixeled pictures. And they can make anything round with multiple pictured. They can do that on their phone, which, by the way, they use off of a satellite that is fucking going around the Earth. (laughs) (laughs) Calm down, Ange. I'm I'm looking out over the Baltic Sea right now, and I I can't see Russia, so. (laughs) Yeah, right? Like, you know, I, I can't see California. Yeah. You would think, okay, let's put it this way. I cannot see the largest building I believe in the United States right now is Sears Towers in uh Chicago. I believe yeah. I'm not 100 percent sure. I haven't checked up on my architecture recently. But you would think from Pittsburgh, there's really nothing blocking the view of the Sears Towers between Pittsburgh and Chicago. No, there's no mountain ranges. It actually gets flatter. And I have a bunch of great lakes I can look over. So why don't I see the top of the Sears Tower if the Earth is fucking flat? <laughs> I mean, it, it breaks down on so many levels. I can't understand why people in the year 2017 still believe this crap. If you are really interested in flat Earth theory, there are some interesting experiments that you can read on. And then as an exercise, you can try to figure out what's wrong with them. I can tell you the very, I can tell you what's wrong with them from the jump. They say that the earth is flat. <laughs> That's where their whole argument breaks down. Like, you know, you can't take, you have to do multiple picture, pixeled pictures of the earth. Why? Because it's a big goddamn place. It's hard to get one picture perfectly of the earth. We have one, one that we took and it was during one of the Apollo missions on their way back from, uh, the moon, they actually stayed on it long enough that the moon had shifted to the dark side where the dark side was facing the sun, which is a bad thing because when you get up there and you're actually walking around on the moon, you need to like uh, be in the sunshine. But they stayed up there long enough that as they was coming back, the moon was on the dark side and they actually could see the full earth and they took a picture. There's one in existence. We don't send people up there all the time and we especially don't send them up there to take pictures of the earth. Oh. That seems like a huge waste when there's things like Trappist 7 out there, or Trappist 1 out there with its seven goddamn planets. Yeah. I mean, could you imagine them, you know, for 500 consecutive hours, we're going to take pictures of the Earth. That, that would be kind of boring. That'd be a gigantic waste of goddamn money. Yeah. Gigantic waste of money. So, if you know a flat earther, please, when they pop up on their Facebook, shoot shoot down their way. Please, please. This is pissing me off beyond all belief. Um. And, and what drives me nuts more than anything is this group of people are growing. That's amazing. Yeah, they're not going down in numbers. They're growing. Because at one point, their numbers was zero. The world accepted it. And now they don't so much. So, whatever. Uh Dan, you want to plug iTunes, Google Play, and Facebook and stuff for me? i got to yes. calm down. <laughs> we do want iTunes reviews. Uh, because iTunes reviews and reviews on other platforms, if you listen on Android or Google Play, will help increase the visibility of this podcast and get us more listeners and hopefully more sponsors. I post every episode of uh, Final Astronomy on YouTube as well, so if you have any problems getting accessing the MP3s, uh, the, the shows are on YouTube as well. We are also on Facebook at Final Astronomy. Just search Final Astronomy in Facebook and you will find us and can talk to us there. Yep. 
I look at uh, messages there maybe 20 times a day, so we would respond pretty quickly. Yeah, we also uh, post at least twice every day. So yes. you, we do try to keep you up on the latest in science information. I know I posted something today about the naming conventions for the Plutonian system. Yes, I tend to. Um, and now I'm uh, <laughs> deep into the main belt, the asteroid belt. So I find interesting asteroids all the time. I also can't keep my hands away from uh, Planet Nine and Proxima Centauri. Yeah. Anything comes up there. I know I posted that one thing for you. Yes. Yeah. I was like, this is you can now help. Me. Yeah, you can help search for Planet Nine as an, an amateur astronomer. Yeah, it's very cool. Uh, please go to YouTube, comment, hit that subscribe button. Same thing on iTunes, Google Play, and please check out the Facebook. That's very important. Uh, if you wanted to get a hold of us, you could go to aofcast at, at gmail.com, and you can send me an email, and you can tell me how big of an idiot I am because I didn't think about kinetic explosions. I want at least one of this. At least at least one saying that I'm a moron. Okay, I'll send you one. Okay. <laughs> if nobody else does. Yeah. It'll be good. Um, <laughs> uh, you can also find me at uh, FOA Angelo on Twitter and uh, at Gongsuo on Twitter as well. Uh, recently, I have been shying away from Twitter because as an American citizen, it is a cesspool. <laughs> <laughs> With the with the recent elections, it's just between both sides arguing with each other. The place it's just a cesspool. I kind of stay away from it, but I do uh, retweet some cool science things that I find, and I occasionally complain about random myself. Dan, if people wanted to find you, where would they find you? I'm on Twitter as Dan Horning, where I post stuff about all my YouTube and podcast projects. Uh, the closest podcast to this one, orbiting very close to it, is Fan of History. Check that out when I uh, cover ancient history with Brennan Rankin in English. Uh, yeah, that's about it. Okay, that's it, really? Okay. Well, I want to, one more thing, yeah, regarding your president, Mr. Trump. He has now uh, just read this, that uh, he has ordered NASA to... Uh, NASA to uh, look into putting people, putting two people on the next rocket launch for the moon. So he wants to get back to the moon, and that's interesting. That is, that's cool. I appreciate that. Um, any money that it's goes like, like a year in advance, it's, it probably will not work. Any money that goes into the NASA, I'm happy about. Yeah. I, you know, by the time they actually get everything together and say, okay, we have the people, he might not be in office, and they could take said funds and. Uh, reallocate them to more important things. <laughs> but I'm cool with that. Well, you know, when you first brought him up, I thought you was going to talk about something else and I would have to edit it all out because you're <laughs> Swedish and, you know, all that stuff. Yes, yes. Um, but that's how you can get a hold of us. Uh, next episode, we should be starting the two-part series on the main belt. Oh, yes. After comprising all the data that I did on the main belt for the past week, or the past two weeks, um, yeah. it became quickly apparent to me that it needs to show. Yes. Uh, the information that we have on the big five that is in oh. that solar system, that'll be its own show. Or not yes. solar system. In the asteroid belt, it will yeah. be its own show. And then in the other show, we're going to just talk about the belt in a more general term. How it was it. formed and everything else like that. So 
We're going to have a whole two-part series on the asteroid belt, and we will talk about even the crazy stuff that Hollywood has gotten wrong about the asteroid belt, because <laughs> I have to have my craziness just as Dan has to colonize everything. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> um, so until we talk about that again, I thank you all for listening, and remember, science is very interesting, and especially when you're talking about outer space. Keep looking towards it. It'll always surprise you. Have a good one. What'd you think? Did you enjoy it? Well, if you did, head on over to patreon.com forward slash astronomy and pledge to these guys. For each patron they receive, the more they will be incentivized to improve the show. So help them out so they can help you out and throw them a couple bucks an episode. They will really appreciate it. Thanks. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.